from Hebrews chapter 11. It probably will come as no surprise to you that the sermon is about faith. What might come as a little bit of a surprise to you if you've been here uh, throughout the semester is that we read Hebrews chapter 11 all of a sudden. A New Testament passage because we've been in a series on the Old Testament uh, all semester. Just a note of explanation for those of you who are curious about chronology and stuff like that. I chose to do that because today I actually do want to focus on a section from the book of Joshua. But I wanted to focus on two rather lengthy stories. And since I couldn't figure out which lengthy story to have the reader read and didn't want to ask them to submit to a very lengthy story to read, I decided, well, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. After all, Hebrews chapter 11, from the point at which we began to read till the end, is two things. It's a recap of where we've been, remember, with Moses all the way up through Rahab and the walls of Jericho. And then Hebrews chapter 11 at the end advances beyond that and speaks of a considerable number of saints, many of them unnamed in the future. And it causes us to think about faith in our life for the future. But having said that, it is today a topic, namely about faith, looking at two passages of Scripture in the book of Joshua. I, I begin by recalling, uh, like many of you, an image that you probably saw even as a child and now has become an iconic image in many people's minds. There are various images of this concept, but it's the image of praying hands. The one that I think of most quickly when I think of the image of praying hands is not this image, but this one. It's the hands of an older gentleman at a very simple table, head down in front of his daily bread. It reminds me of what I was taught as a child. When I was but a small child, I was taught that when I prayed, I was to fold my hands and close my eyes. I know on at least one occasion, I always ask too many questions for my parents. Why do I always have to fold my hands? The answer was because little boys have a tendency to do things with their hands that are not appropriate when we're praying. Okay, I've got brothers, I kick and slap, but I can figure out other ways with folded hands. That, that was one of the answers, but another answer, I think, on occasion was, it's an attitude, Bobby of bowing before God. But what about closing eyes? That too I ask about, as you might expect. And I was told that it kept me from looking around at all kinds of things wherever I was so I could focus on prayer. You know, I think actually both of those things were helpful to me as a child. Folded hands and closed eyes. But what I didn't consider as a child was this paradoxical reality that in order for me to see, I have to metaphorically close my eyes. I mean see with the eyes of faith. In order to see with the eyes of faith, 
I need to close my eyes to the simple reality that's around me and enter into the spiritual realm of the invisible, wise hand of God. It's a paradox. It almost seems foolish. Close your eyes so you can see. But I think it's true. Now the two stories. Rahab. You remember the story, but let me recall it for you once again. The people of God, as we noted last week, were about ready to enter the promised land. God gave Joshua some instructions that were very important for him. They were simple. Be courageous, be strong, and follow my words, which was the law. And then I will give you success. And on the heels of that, Joshua prepares to enter the promised land. His preparation is laid this way. He sends out two spies. Remember, he was a part of a considerable spying operation sometime earlier. He and Caleb were the only two out of 12 who came back from the promised land and told Moses, we can do this. The others' hearts melted. Joshua sent two spies into the promised land, particularly to scout out a city called Jericho. The two spies entered the city of Jericho, and they scouted it out. Apparently, they thought the best way to find out what was going on in Jericho, or perhaps to be unseen, was to enter the house of a prostitute. Of course, we know the story. That didn't keep them undercover, because once they entered the house of the prostitute, they were discovered, and the king sent men to the house of the prostitute Rahab and said, call those men out, find out where they are. They're foreigners, where they're from. I think they're spying out our city. The men were sent to Rahab's house, and Rahab denied having them in her presence. She said, no, they're not with me. Yes, they did come. They came, but they left already. And as a matter of fact, if you leave quickly, you'll probably be able to find them. Go that way. And they did. Searching for people that supposedly had left Rahab's house. Of course, unbeknownst to them, the spies had not left the house. They were on the roof of Rahab's house under the flax that she had prepared at the top of her house apparently to dry. She went up to them and talked to them following uh, her uh, direction to the king's men. She said to them, I want you to know something I know about you. Oh, not I know you. Uh, You're strangers. But I know about you. Here's what I know about you. You people are part of the nation of Israel, in effect. You're people who follow a particular God. And we've heard stories about you and your God. What we've heard are gigantic stories about you and your God. We've heard how God parted the Red Sea to let you come across and get away from your your slave owners in Egypt. We've heard about stories where you have routed your enemies and it didn't seem possible that you could do so. But for whatever reason, God is on your side. And I might be a prostitute. But I get this, your God is great, 
and I want to cast my lot with him. So please, two strangers, will you do me this favor? Whenever you come to conquer this city, will you spare me and my family because of the kindness I've showed you? I fill in a lot of gaps in the conversation. You could be dead by now, except for me. I could easily have told the truth, and they would have taken you away. But you went free because of me, and I've been kind to you. Will you be kind to me and my family? Their answer, you might expect, was, of course we will be. As a matter of fact, when we come to this city, we want you to stay inside. Stay inside your house with your whole family. Do not come out, and when it's time, we'll bring you out. And not a hair of your head's going to be harmed. We'll protect you. But we need a little help, Rahab. Here's what we need you to do. We need for you, house against the wall, apparently, to put down a scarlet rope outside your window so that when we invade this city, we'll know which house is yours. She did that, followed the instructions, and they left. Now consider her faith. There could be any number of things we could evaluate, but just three. In order for Rahab to exercise this kind of faith, she had to take a risk with human testimony. Right? Was she there for the parting of the Red Sea? No. Did she see the previous battles where the people of God had won because of the hand of God? No. Did she know these to be reliable testimonies of God's power? I would suggest not really. She certainly didn't know the spies. All she knew were stories. Now, you might call them reliable stories. They were reliable stories. But I'm not sure she had a way of knowing that for sure. She decided that the stories told a story that she wanted to be a part of. And she took them at her word, at their word. Um... I know there was not ABC, NBC, or Fox News or anything like that back then. But if I was her, I probably wouldn't really trust the stories. I'd want to know for myself. But she trusted the stories, and by implication, trusted the God of the stories. That was an incredible risk. Why? Because when she took that risk, she almost literally stepped outside the walls of her own protection. The walls that surrounded her city were the walls that had kept them safe. That was the purpose of the walls. They were impenetrable. 
and she looked at the reality that was around her, those walls, and figuratively or almost literally, when trusting these spies, stepped outside the protection she could see and even touch. What a gigantic risk. The second thing I see uh, in these, these stories of faith with Rahab she basically, as I've said already, took a risk with strangers. She believed strangers she did not know. And she took a further step. She became an accomplice with strangers she did not know. She didn't just believe them. She took them in, she supported them, she protected them, and she entered into an agreement with them that would be the downfall of her own city. Another gigantic risk of faith. She took them at their word that they would spare her. Maybe I make too much of it, but I can't imagine it being so easy to trust them but she did. There's a third thing I see in the story of Rahab and her faith. She not only took um, a risk with human testimony and took a risk with the trustworthiness of the spies, she took a risk with an absolutely invisible, unknown God. We've already noted that she wasn't there for the mighty acts of God. Or let's put it another way. Those faithful slash unfaithful people of Israel who had seen the mighty acts of God routinely and turned away from God, she did not have that heritage. She'd not seen the power of God up close and personal. She'd only heard the stories. Can I say it this way? She'd never experienced His presence. Not with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Not with the Shekinah glow of God. Not with the thundering from the Mount Sinai. She'd never experienced the presence of God. And if we are to understand it in context, she had never had a means of communicating with this God. Let me remind you of something. Many of us today are absolutely good with the idea that anyone in any place around the world at any time, no matter what their circumstances or their upbringing, has the ability to cry out to the God of the universe and be heard. I believe that. But I can almost guarantee you that these people did not. Everything about their culture suggests that the only way they could contact a God was through a particular procedure inside a particular community. The whole, what we call, cultic process was deeply embedded in their understanding of communicating with a God. This woman, 
I would propose, did not see herself as able and thus did not communicate with the God who was invisible. She only trusted an invisible, unknown God. I, I want to acknowledge something. Her faith was very, very simple. Very, very honest. Very, very opportunistic. I just need to be saved. And that very, very simple, honest, opportunistic faith is held up in Hebrews chapter 11 as true faith. So that's the story of Rahab, but the story of the walls uh, themselves, that too is an interesting story. Uh, Joshua gets instructions from God concerning how to proceed. God says to Joshua, I want you to follow these instructions. I want you to take the people. I want you to set camp. And then in the morning, I want you to go to Jericho and I want you to walk around the walls. I want the priests to blow the trumpets. I want armed men in front of them and behind, and I want you to walk around those walls, but tell the people, instruct them, don't say a word. Don't shout, don't cry, don't do anything. Just let the priests blow the trumpets and walk in silence. And I want you to do that for six days, Joshua. Every day I want you to go out there and walk around those walls and blow the trumpet and then go back to camp. And then on the seventh day, Joshua, I want you to do it seven times. And at the end of the seventh time around the wall, you haven't done this before, Josh. We only did it once before, each day. Now seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, I want the trumpets to blow and I want the people to shout like they haven't six days previously. And then I want to tell you what's going to happen, Joshua. The walls are going to fall down. And when the walls fall down, go walk right in and take the city. Remarkably, Joshua, according to the narrative, doesn't even ask any questions. Now, I, I don't know. Maybe he asked questions, but the narrator doesn't tell us that. All he says is that Joshua got this word from God, and he did it. They started walking. They marched around the walls as instructed, and as predicted, the walls fell down. And they walked into the city and took it. That's the story. Are, are you, like, not amazed by that story anymore because you've heard it so many times? I, I've heard it all my life, ever since I was a child. It became rather routine. Well, of course the walls fell down. Of course they walked around the wall. God told them to walk around the wall, and the walls fell down. Come on! Step outside your Christian box for a minute. That's unbelievable. Why would such a thing happen? Why would anybody use that method? There's also sorts of historical military history about how to take cities. The one I love the most is the one that I think of whenever I think of Jericho, the Trojan horse. Why not just get inside the walls? Why not work it from the inside out? After all, two spies had already been there. 
That would have been a brilliant military strategy. Or they could have drawn the enemy outside the walls. We, we have records of that even in the Old Testament, those kinds of battles where the enemy was drawn outside the walls in some fashion, and then an ambush from behind uh, took the city. They could have laid siege to the city, done a basically land barricade around it, starved the people out. That happened routinely in military strategy, but none of that. Instead, they just walked around the city's walls and they fell down. That's amazing. Now, I think the stories, both of them together, tell us a lot about faith. The faith of these particular people, as I've mentioned with Rahab already, she trusted an invisible God. But the experience was visible results. The experience was her whole household was saved. The experience in trusting an invisible God was she was included in the new people of God. Rahab is the beginning of a new people of God. A Canaanite woman who is now brought into the community of faith. Uh, By the way, originally she was placed outside the city. You know what happens eventually. It's through her very body generations ahead that Jesus Christ comes. This Canaanite woman who had no heritage of faith, who had this simplistic, absolutely reductionistic, opportunistic faith becomes part of the heritage of Jesus Christ. Experiencing God after stepping out in faith. And these people, all of them, they experience the mighty act of God after stepping out in faith. They may have looked foolish to other people. They may have felt foolish themselves. But their foolish behavior, so-called, resulted in the dramatic experience of God, namely the conquest of that city. Lessons of faith uh, for us, perhaps embedded in this text itself, The first is this, uh, faith, (laughs) at least I want to pull this out of the text. (laughs) Faith is not foolish, but often we are. We're, We're foolish because we place our faith in foolish things. And when we do that, faith looks bad. It's not the problem of faith, it's the problem of the object. So foolish faith always looks foolish when it's placed in an improper object. And we routinely do this. Sometimes, this is my corrective before I say all the positive things about faith, okay? Sometimes we literally think that we can do outrageous, stupid things and call it faith and blame God for it. I don't know how to put this any more kindly, but we're not Joshua, okay? 
There's stories of faith in Joshua, but we're not Joshua. There were special episodes in the life of the followers of God where particular people were called on particular occasion with outrageous commands to follow. And the community of faith, listen to that, the community of faith rallied around the Word of God and then followed, and then God demonstrated through that prophet His faithfulness. But you know what we do sometimes? We take our harebrained, stupid ideas and say, God told me to do this, and pretend like it's the same thing as Joshua and a tight-knit community of people who band together by the purposes of God to follow that invisible God who calls them the things that might seem foolish. Those are two different things, my friends. So be careful how you belittle or defame faith by taking on your own ideas about what ought to be and what you think God has called you to do. And making a fool of yourself and a fool of community. Okay, that's the tough reality, right? That's the one I want to do, throw out there as a corrective. And you may say to yourself, Bob, you're just, you're just ripping out my heart of faith. I hope not. Because if you're honest with yourself, my friends, you know people who have done that, right? You know people who have called their own, own foolishness the foolishness of God. And God's looked foolish. So with all our zeal, let's be careful. Now, the, the more positive application of faith. First thing is this. Faith is always simple. And frequently, it's opportunistic. I'd like to tell you that my faith and the faith of all the people I know was remarkably rich and deep and had nothing to do with self. But I know better, and so do you. Frequently, faith is just as simple as Rahab. Because honestly, folks, we don't know that much about God. Oh, yeah, we know a lot but not anywhere close to what God is. We know this fraction of God and His character and His power through stories by faith. And so every step of faith for us is really, really simple because we have such a small amount of knowledge. Let's not belittle people like Rahab who had no knowledge and took a tiny step of faith and were credited as saints for taking that step of faith because that's what we do. Our faith is pathetically simple and frequently opportunistic. You see, there's only one thing that you can consider in this passage about Rahab. It wasn't that Rahab had this wonderful notion of what salvation was going to be. 
and had the reality somehow lodged in her consciousness of atonement and all the things that came through the law, she knew none of that. She had none of that as a part of her paradigm. All she knew is that she was about to be destroyed with a bunch of other people and she wanted help. And so her faith was, I put my trust an invisible God that I believe in. That's all. And it's a gigantic faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It's simplistic. It's opportunistic. My friends, it's you. It's me. The second thing about faith that I see from this passage, these passages, is that faith is the ability to see beyond the obvious. That's pretty simple. (laughs) It's the ability just to see beyond what's immediately apparent. Rahab lifts her eyes over the walls. Joshua looks ahead to a reality that he can't see but visualizes by faith because God called him to it. He looks beyond the obvious and sees something in the future or even in the present that is another dimension of reality. That's faith. Now you say to yourself, I I just can't go there. Oh, yes, you can. You, You do it all the time. You just don't call it faith. You know, sometimes we think, I believe, that our advanced understanding of science and all these kinds of things has somehow diminished the importance of faith. Or as a matter of fact, that we can't be so foolish anymore, right? Because after all, who would believe in the invisible? This kind of stuff. You know, if you have eyes of faith, you will see it exactly the opposite. Or with the eyes of faith, I challenge you to see it exactly the opposite. You see, the reality is that nowadays we understand things that are absolutely, profoundly influential in our lives that heretofore we could never see. And we embrace them. Now, you may say, with my illustration to come, yeah, but you can see that. I understand that, but you can't see it. Let me suggest that tomorrow you get frustrated enough with your sneezing and coughing and all that kind of thing that you go to see a doctor, an allergist. And he says to you, my friend, I want to give you these little pokes in the arm. I did this one time. 110 of them, pokes in the arm. And each of the pokes in the arm had something that I was or was not allergic to. Routinely, not always, but routinely, those things were invisible to my eye. Now, fortunately or unfortunately for me, I came away with no allergic reactions to all 110 shots, and I still have to figure out why I sneeze and cough. They just tell me it's my sinuses. Big help that is. The point is this. If I had been allergic to something, it is likely that part of my allergy would have been to something that was absolutely invisible to my eye. Yes, I know they can detect it under microscopes, but that's just the point. 
You see, a whole reality is surfacing around us, swirling around us that we cannot see. And because of medical science, we now see it with different eyes. And that reality, while invisible to the naked eye, is mighty and powerful in our life. Maybe you think it an inept analogy, but I don't. The eyes of faith see possibilities and see promises and see realities that do not exist to the naked eye. And I'll just put it another way. It's another kind of knowledge. And God calls us to it. As a matter of fact, faith is not to be closed-minded. It's to open one's mind. I, I love the illustration, which I've told before, a biblical story of Elisha when the city of God was besieged by the enemies of God and Elisha's servant stepped out on the stoop, so to speak, and saw the hills surrounded with the enemies of God. And he came back into Elisha and he said, Master, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. And Elisha just simply, I would like to think, it's not in the text, but I'd like to think, he closed his eyes and said, Lord, open his eyes. Maybe he asked the servant to close his eyes. Lord, open his eyes. And when he looked up a second time, he saw the hosts of heaven surrounding the armies of God. The armies that were about to siege the city of God. He saw a reality that really did exist. And as the story plays out, you realize it really exists. Those men are blinded and led back home. The reality was present. It just was invisible. The reality of faith is like that. It's present but invisible. And you can see it only by closing your eyes to follow God. The final thing about faith that I see uh, in just not just this story, but many stories and that I've experienced in life uh, myself is that faith is made strong only when it's continually exercised. As a matter of fact, if we understood this principle, you know probably what we would do? We would probably beg God to get us into a corner. We'd probably say, Lord, I don't have my back against the wall today. I need that. Because the exercise of faith is the only thing that increases faith. Just like with our bodies, when we stop stretching those muscles, they go into decline. So with faith. When our faith is not stretched, it goes into decline. That's why your stories of faith are so profoundly important to your life of faith. Do you have them? Maybe write them down. I've mentioned before, but one of the greatest gifts my wife has given to our family and someday to our children, as she says, 
is her prayer journal. And frequently at the dinner table, she would say, you know what was going on last year, Bob? She tells me a story of faith. And my day is renewed. Treasure your stories of faith. They're a reservoir that you'll go back to. And don't break fellowship with community because in community, other stories, not yours, are reservoirs for your faith. We need our stories and we need other stories as an incredible strength that stretches our faith. God will take you sometimes to what seems to be a breaking point only to stretch your faith a little bit more so that you can trust in Him, rejoice in Him, and do it all over again. Now you might find that to be a little bit morbid, but with the eyes of faith, it's exciting. Look what God's going to do when you exercise your faith in Him. It'll be incredible. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for these stories, um, ancient stories with contemporary truth. We know, Lord, that our circumstances are different than Rahab and Joshua. We know that we're different people. We know that we live in a different point of history. And we know that we've been given the grace of redemption through Jesus Christ in a way that they could only have imagined. We thank you for them and their stories, which inform our stories. We thank you for our stories, Lord, which, when we stop to remember, energize our faith. And we thank you for the stories of others, that cloud of witnesses that's right here, not just out there, but right here around us. May we enter into their stories, be encouraged, and allow you to stretch us in our faith so we can delight in your goodness and hope to see you someday completely, completely restored where all things will be made new. Until then, Lord, give us faith. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.